Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI-101, we talked about the beginnings of the space race, from the advent of liquid-fueled rocketry to the development of warhead delivery systems that evolved into manned vehicles. When we left off, both the United States and Russia were planning their next steps in the race to the moon after putting men into simple orbits around the Earth. In this episode, we'll follow the rest of both programs up until the official end of the space race in 1975. Let's begin. Okay, we're here on HI101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. And we've been talking about the space race. Yes. Which is very exciting and a little bit nostalgic. The race to space. And uh, a little bit pettier and more Nazi-based than uh, than I seem to remember as a child. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't really, they kind of glossed over the Nazis. (laughs) Operation Paperclip is one of those things that I think the... uh, Probably like the entire U.S. government would like everyone to just forget about a little bit. But we won't let them. Nope. Sacred duty right here. Yeah, you already know. Tell everybody about all the Nazis. The people deserve to know. Well, I mean, I you know, honestly, I think people do deserve to know. <laughs> I know you said that jokingly. No, I was I was serious, but I, I just took, you know, here at HI101, we take a hard look. <laughs> culture jammers we're basically 60 minutes <laughs> yeah basically we're up there <laughs> at the end do you want to talk about how like kids these days wear their pants too low like uh andy rooney i still dress like one of those kids and i'm almost 30 <laughs> so space race am i right <laughs> yeah anyway last time we were sort of talking about how the mercury and vostok programs while kind of useful for establishing a few relatively easy firsts namely breaking the atmosphere and achieving orbit that is it. which is is an incredible achievement but compared to soon to be uh yeah the moon is further than that yeah they're, they're a little bit less advanced so i mean a mercury and vostok could get a guy into orbit they could get him back down that was about it it's a good start it's a pretty good start they tried doing the rendezvous thing with Vostok, and they got people within a few kilometers of each other. Mm-hmm. And they thought, hey, the moon's bigger than the other ship, so yeah. chances are we'll get closer. <laughs> well, the biggest reason that they were working, or that they were worried about making orbital rendezvous, is that there's a few different ways that you can go to the moon, and almost all of them involve needing to dock something with something else. Mm-hmm. Because it's really difficult to create a launch system that incorporates 
a capsule for people, all of the instrumentation that goes into keeping them alive. So mm-hmm. the, like the command module, electronics, the life support, all of that, as well as a lunar lander. Right. It's really difficult to have that all pieced together, ready to go, and then screw that on top of a rocket <laughs> in an efficient way. Fair, yeah. So a lot of the designs that were being thrown about early on were things like, do we build a spaceship that is essentially the top, like the entire top of the rocket lands on the moon, takes back off from the moon and comes back to Earth? That's mm-hmm. really difficult to do. Yep. Do we send two separate rockets up into Earth orbit, have them rendezvous in Earth orbit, one of them carrying a lander, one of them carrying the crew, mm-hmm. have them rendezvous there, dock, and fly to the moon? Do we have two rockets fly to the moon and dock in lunar orbit? Or do we have the system that actually eventually ended up being used by the Americans, which is have the lander stowed in the rocket below, have them launch up the lander revealed, Mm -hmm. have the command module dock with the lunar lander, and then fly to the moon like that. So that's that one at least uses only one rocket. Yeah. But... All of these, all of these systems involve some sort of rendezvous. Yeah, some sort of navigation within orbit to to meet two craft together. Which, if you've never done that before, if no one's ever done that before, mm-hmm. oh man, that sounds difficult. Yeah, and that's the first step. And here's the other thing to consider: this is the mid '60s. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that, like, man. These guys were working on paper. Yeah. They had slide rulers. Slide rulers. Oh man. Computers took up full buildings. They needed to be. They needed to be air conditioned. Mm-hmm. Man, buckles the mind. Oh, anything with, to do with the space program is just. It's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, the guys like the average age of a guy working on the Apollo program was younger than us. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just just all these fresh out of the right stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's all these guys fresh out of university that are going straight to work on the Apollo program. And kids today, they take their computers for granted. Yeah. Next on 60 Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'll hear every once in a while that basically like, oh, you know, my iPhone can fly the, or has, you know, has more power than the, the entire computer in the Lunar Lander. Yeah, it's iPhones true. are crazy. Think about what an iPhone allows you to do. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not to say that the, the electronics in those spaceships weren't advanced. They were incredible for the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things like, Things like figuring out how to dock in orbit, that's tr- that's that's really tricky stuff, especially without computer modeling. Right, yeah. Um, or advanced computer modeling, I should say. They did model using computers, but it would take you a day to get your numbers back. Right, yeah. It was very, very difficult. Remember that, you know, Robert Goddard had already charted out a lot of the calculus you need for this orbital telemetry stuff. That's right, and everyone laughed at him. And everyone laughed at him. But it's one thing to chart that out for you know, a single body trying to, like, leave orbit or, or achieve an orbit. Yeah, he was and trying to get another... something to strike the moon as hard as possible and never come back. <laughs> the poor man. He spent the rest of his career talking about getting uh, getting rockets into high-altitude um, courses and never really talking about space because he was afraid people would make fun of him some more. Oh, yeah. Awful. Yikes. Yeah. So anyways, getting two things to actually dock together... Oh my goodness, that's so hard. That's so, so difficult. So both of the new programs were kind of looking at what can be done to get two things to dock together while other teams were working on the actual lunar projects themselves. Mm -hmm. This was sort of a bridge project 
the American one being Gemini, of course, and the uh, the Soviet one being Voshkod. Let's talk a bit about Voshkod first, because Voshkod only had two missions. Oh, yeah? Yep. Voshkod 1 went up in uh, 1964, October 12th, 1964, and it was essentially an old Vostok capsule, mm-hmm. which you'll remember was designed to carry one person who would eject above the ground, seven kilometers above the ground, right. and then parachute. Parachuting. <laughs> My goodness. Terrifying. They uh, altered it. So first of all, the um, the astronaut, or I should say cosmonauts, wouldn't need to eject and parachute. Mm-hmm. What it, what they did was they added a bunch of uh, parachutes to slow it down. And then there was a retro rocket on the bottom of it okay. that would fire about a meter above the ground to give it a, and I've seen it described specifically this way, a softer landing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's not leaving a giant crater. I've I've heard modern astronauts describe landing in a Soyuz capsule, which is a direct descendant of this, as being as, as being like being in a, a terrible car accident. Yeah, it's really really rough. It's really rough. Softer landing. The other thing is that it was modified to hold three cosmonauts. Yay! It's a capsule that was originally for one cosmonaut. This was done by getting none of them to wear pressure suits. <laughs> oh. <laughs> cool. These three guys flew up in what's known as a shirt sleeve environment, so mm-hmm. without pressure suits. They made their orbit and they came back down all without needing pressure suits. So that was another first for them. It was also the first time three people had ridden in a single capsule. Um, and it was incredibly dangerous because if anything had gone wrong, they had no pressure suits. Right. Now, this was October 12th. On October 14th, uh, Khrushchev was deposed by Brezhnev in a in a political coup, mm-hmm. who took over and canceled everything after Voshkod too. Oh, nope. <laughs> now, I mean Korolev, who, as we talked about, was the um, was the director of the the Soviet space program, kind of agreed to this. Voshkod was not. As I said, it was a bridge project, and it was pretty clear that it wasn't really going anywhere. I see. The capsules weren't great. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were pretty dangerous. Right. And he was a little bit worried about what could potentially happen with people in this environment. They did decide to keep Voshkod 2 on. I left out of my notes when that exactly flew. But, <laughs> but I mean, it was, it, was, uh, uh, it was early in 1965. That was carrying two cosmonauts. Mm-hmm who did wear pressure suits this time because one of them, uh, Alexei Leonov, uh, was the first person to perform an EVA. Oh. It had this weird inflatable airlock over the hatch Mm -hmm. that, like, he got into. It allowed it to, like, change pressures. And because all of the electronics inside a Voshkod capsule are designed to work under pressure. Right. And if they're depressurized, they could potentially overheat and, and, uh, well, catch fire very right. quickly. Yes. <laughs> Which is a bad thing when you're in space. Oh, no. <laughs> so he got into this airlock, got outside, did his quick little spacewalk, tried to get back in, and his... You look really concerned. Tried. Tried to get back in and realized that his spacesuit had started inflating so much that he couldn't get back into the airlock. I'm too puffy. He was too puffy. He couldn't get back in. So what he did... 
in an incredibly brave and incredibly dangerous maneuver was leak a bunch of the air pressure out of his suit risking depressurization for himself oh my god <laughs> until the suit deflated enough that he could get back in and close the airlock and begin the pressurization sequence he was fine but <laughs> Balls they, they learned some things about keeping pressure in suits yeah that day yeah i'm sure they did Ooh. and that was the last voshkod miss- mission that was all that happened in voshkod those two missions Send three guys up in shirt sleeves and then send two guys up and have one of them walk outside the capsule. So that's that's all that happened there. All right. Yep. This whole time they're developing the Soyuz program. Mm-hmm. So they're building completely... So they were new. ready for the next step already. Well, ready-ish. Yeah. The Soyuz program took ages to develop. Sure. It took a really long time to develop. I mean, they're, they're also working on the Apollo program right now, even though they're doing Gemini missions, mm-hmm. right? I keep coming back to calling them bridge programs, but really they're there to sort of demonstrate proof of concept for maneuvers or for uh, technologies that would be needed to go to the moon. That's fine. Yeah, we're, we're doing the sort of same sort of thing now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's got to be... You have to do that kind of testing. Mars is super far away. <laughs> it's super far away. Oh, well, we'll get there eventually. I actually heard a good comparison um, that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson gave during a lecture, which is if you have Earth the size of a schoolroom globe, mm-hmm. uh, space is basically the distance of, away from the globe uh, represented by the thickness of the lacquer on it. Mm-hmm. Like The atmosphere is about that thick. Yep. Um, the moon would be at the back of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mars would be three miles away. Yep. It's nuts. It's incomprehensibly vast. Yes, yeah, space is real big. I heard about this one town. I, I forget where. I'll, I'll look it up and put it in the notes. I heard about this one town where they they made a scale model of the solar system, and they they've lost like oh, half yeah, of the planets. That. And I mean the, the 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 sun is not that big. It's like the size of a basketball or something like right, that. Right. Yeah. And they've yeah they've lost a bunch of the planets. <laughs> they, they had do? to be set so far away. Yeah. Oops. Well, <laughs> it's a big place. It's a big big place. On the other hand. Gemini starts just popping off. Um, you got your two-man capsules, which is, you know, a big step up from one, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, what that allows is things like spacewalks. Right. Um, and it allows people to be doing a lot more at, you know, at any given time uh, in terms of running experiments, things like that. You can have one person piloting while another person does something completely unrelated. It was also using the uh, the Titan launch vehicles, which was another step up again from, from Atlas. The, the Titans were quite large. Mm-hmm. And again, that's that's just another advance in, you know, staging of, of rockets, in, you know, complexity, in terms of lift capacity, all of that stuff. In March 1965, uh, Gemini 3 had the first craft change its own orbit. So in, in terms of like um, uh, orbital inclination. Ah, okay, yep. Because before this, essentially, a rocket launches you into orbit, you're in orbit, Mm -hmm. until you don't want to be in orbit anymore, then you fire uh, retro thrusters to um, decay your orbit until you're falling back to Earth. Mm -hmm. This actually showed that you could, for example, if two craft were in orbit and they hadn't been launched perfectly so that they were you know, very close to each other, right. that they could actually alter their orbits to a point where they could rendezvous properly. Mm-hmm. Very important. Sounds kind of boring. 
No, I get it. I played Kerbal Space Program. I never really. Got I the can't hang believe of it. we haven't talked about that. <laughs> I was game trying to avoid it because I'm super bad at it. Kerbal is really good. It, it's a really bad simulator. It's really good at sort of demonstrating basic ideas yeah, concepts about, that you wouldn't really think about <laughs> yeah just just what it takes to get something into space to control it in space to bring it back from space all of that stuff uh and it's also a lot of fun yep but yeah it can be very difficult anyways enough about the video games <laughs> oh the video games kids these days in august 1965 there was a um a mission that recorded eight days in space which is long enough to go to the moon. Nice. Which is why that's important. Yeah. In December 1965, Gemini 6A and Gemini 7 rendezvoused within one foot of each other. Wow. And they did something called stationing, which is basically orbiting very, very close together in like the full orbit. So it's not kind of drifting hmm. closer and further together. Yeah. At one point, they were stationing so well that they that neither craft used any fuel to adjust anything for 20 straight minutes wow they did three orbits i mean they weren't a foot of drifting they weren't a foot apart the whole time they yeah. you know they tended to stay more like a kilometer apart mm-hmm. um when they went on, onto the night side of the planet they would pull like a, like several kilometers apart so they wouldn't accidentally drift into each other yeah fair enough but they were able to maneuver their craft to within one foot of each other which is astounding yes it's gemini 6a because the original gemini 6 mission they had these uh, these ships called Aegis Trainer ships, which were basically just a, a thing that they they sent up there that had basic radio controls on there. It was unmanned and it had a docking port. And it was just there to practice docking with. So Gemini 6A was looking good. Or sorry, Gemini 6 was looking good to launch, mm-hmm. but its, it's Aegis Trainer um, was destroyed. So Gemini oh, okay. 6 couldn't really go ahead, so they decided to just instead use it for this rendezvous purpose. And mm-hmm. so redesignated, they, redesignated it, yeah. they redesignated it 6A. Gemini 7 went on to spend 14 days in orbit. So wow. again, really stretching the limits of what you could actually accomplish. Because again, doctors had no idea what sort of long-term effects space travel could have on the human body. Yeah, exactly. The first dude that went up was up there for less than two hours. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like, eh... He seems okay, probably. <laughs> Who knows? Who Space knows? Madness. Well, and I mean, at this point, they had uh, actually empirically measured the Van Allen radiation belts. Mm-hmm. They knew of the possibility of super fast micrometeorites. They had some idea of what sort of dangers they could potentially be exposed to in space. Um, now, some of the longer term things that we know about now, such as, you know, bone degradation and things like that, they right. might not have been as familiar with. But... Again, they weren't going, well, that guy went up for two hours and he seemed okay. Mm-hmm. Let's send someone up there for a year. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's baby steps. Right. And, you know, with the cancellation of Voshgod, 1965 is really the year where the American space program really started pulling ahead because they're logging a lot of firsts that are a lot harder to do right. than just putting a guy in orbit. Again, don't want to minimize that. It's super hard to do, but compared to spending two weeks in orbit compared to eventually docking with other craft which you know later gemini missions would do mm-hmm. you know gemini 8 uh, piloted by neil armstrong Ooh. was the first uh, successful docking maneuver in march of 1966 uh, november 1966 the first fairly long-term uh, working eva was completed so uh, meaning that he actually accomplished work out in space and not just like got out and was like well i'm in space now 
Buzz Aldrin on Gemini 12. So we're hearing some names we probably know at this point. Space heroes. The other thing that Gemini was doing was increasing the pool of astronauts that they had to pull from for Apollo because you can't, you know, you want some experience on on these missions when it's a little bit longer, a little bit more dangerous. You want right. people who can adapt and who have some idea of what they're you dealing know who with. Guys are so some of the missions were done by new astronauts. I mean, obviously trained, but right. you know, new to being in space. But they almost always had a veteran of the Mercury or Gemini programs on board. Mm-hmm. Now. People were saying that of all of these like accomplishments by Gemini, the the five hours that Aldrin spent working outside the uh, the spaceship was by far the d- most difficult to do. Yeah, I think so. Learning to sort of pilot a vessel in a new way is really really difficult. But these guys are usually U.S. Navy or U.S. Air Force test pilots, right? And their entire job is to take vehicles that have never been piloted before and figure out how to pilot them properly without dying. Fair, but it's one thing to pilot an experimental vehicle and there's another thing to get on the hood of that experimental vehicle while it's operating and, you know, start taking it apart. Yeah. So it's it's, you know, it's it's the difference between, you know, learning a new control scheme, which is what the docking and again, not to minimize too much, but it's learning a new control scheme, it's learning a new yeah. process for for piloting a vessel. And it's another to relearn how to physically interact with the world around you, which is what Aldrin was doing mm-hmm. in zero G in, in orbit, you know, uh, outside of the vehicle. Yeah. It's really difficult to figure out even stuff. I mean, he would have been doing basic stuff like, you know, ratcheting a bolt open and yep. then back closed. Mm-hmm. And that proved to be incredibly difficult. <laughs> yep. And for good reason. I mean, spacesuits are bulky and, you know, things don't behave the way you expect them to behave. And, you get space sick and you know there's all sorts of barriers to that and this whole time that they're achieving all of this with gemini the russian space program is basically on hold has been since Voshkod 2 yeah true they're developing the soyuz capsule mm-hmm. so it's not as though they're doing nothing but they haven't had anybody haven't up there recently yeah they haven't had anybody out there actually like logging any firsts they haven't had anybody up there gaining any practical experience mm-hmm. There's a big lull right here. Yeah, so if you're looking from the outside, it looks like the Americans are the only one doing anything. Yeah. Now, the Soviets had begun designing for their spa- or for their lunar program in 1962. They had two competing bids. There was the uh, the Korolev-led one that was also creatively named N1L3. Catchy. Yep. Uh, Does that stand for anything? Or? Yeah, N1 was the launch system, like mm-hmm. the, the rocket that they were developing. And the L3 was the spacecraft that they were developing. Sure. <laughs> so no, it doesn't stand for it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's 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 the it's the reason that that designation exists. I don't know if it's... Yeah. yeah. Anyways. What does N mean, though? <laughs> that I don't know. Yeah. Maybe a Russian word? That's what Question I mean. Like, mark? are the words in there? Who knows? I'll, you know what? I'll double check that. Maybe I uh, maybe there is a, a word that's, uh, that starts with N that it's referring to, but... Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see anything. And then the other program that was a competing bid was called the Zond program. Zond? Which is a little bit cooler. I kind of, yeah, I, I like that. Neil before Zond. <laughs> Dumb jokes. Their goal was to have a circumlunar journey by 1967 and a landing by 1968. Okay. That was the goal. Lofty. Absolutely. Korolev, unfortunately, 
died on January 14th, 1966. So just after the Voshkod mission, well, about a year after the Voshkod missions, mm-hmm. uh, while the N1 system was still under development, he actually died of a complication of, of surgery uh, for removal of a, a tumor. Huh. Uh, again, it's another one of those. Uh, if they had lived longer, maybe things would be. Yeah. Anyways, yep. basically the uh, the whole program was succeeded by uh, a guy named uh, Karim Karimov as the full director, and as the the designer for the actual hardware, mm-hmm. a guy named uh, Vasily Mishin. And at this point, they combined the Zond and the N1L3 programs to just make lunar program they had, they had made two competing ones to see if they could come up with like a well it was it was basically a contest like which one's the best system yeah they decided both of them soviet deficiency yeah <laughs> so so yeah that's the way that shook out they were basically designing all of this stuff in secret as you know gemini was getting practical experience on things like docking and the apollo program was in full swing with von Braun developing the Saturn launch systems right. with other scientists working on the actual logistics of the whole thing. You know, one thing that the United States is really, really, really good at is mobilization of the technology sector when they need to. Hmm. Uh, it was a strength in World War II for them when all of their shit, well, when a number of their ships were destroyed at Pearl Harbor. Man, they had battleships back up and ready to go within like. 16 months or something like that which is when you think about battleships yeah building them from scratch is pretty amazing Mm -hmm. like they they, they've they're very good at mobilizing uh engineering and technology whereas the soviets i mean the whole sort of stereotype of inefficiency or bureaucracy or bureaucratic redundancy um wastefulness corruption that comes from somewhere Mm -hmm. it's not I mean, a lot of it's propaganda, but it's not all propaganda. Yeah. And again, they're not telling the world what they're doing, so the world has no idea what sort of gains they're making at this point in time. They don't have a Gemini equivalent that's demonstrating capabilities. Mm -hmm. So it looks like they're just doing nothing. They had also been developing the, uh, the Soyuz program at this point in time under Korolev for most of it, and they had sort of developed it as a separate system from what like it was it was designed to be part of the moon mission but it was kind of to take the the role of the of the um of the command module so the Mm -hmm. the the apollo capsule and then it would be attached to a lunar lander and a a larger launch system kind of similar to what they're talking about for orion now okay yeah right and the soyuz was going well but it wasn't going as quickly as as Brezhnev would have liked. And one thing that Korolev had always been really good at was knowing when to tell politicians to go stuff it. Oh, okay. Which is an important thing when directing something like a space program. Mishin was the kind of guy that when they came to him and said, it's 1967, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the revolution, we want to do something big for it. Can you have a Soyuz? (laughs) Can you have a Soyuz ready to go? Yeah. Unfortunately, Mishin was the kind of guy that would say, I, I guess so. Oh. Why not? Uh, maybe. On April 24th, 1967, Soyuz 1 became the first in-flight fatality of the space race. With Vladimir Komarov, the only pilot of what would be a three-person capsule, 
uh, he essentially his his shoot didn't deploy properly. Oh, yeah, and he crashed a long, long way from where he should have. Really, really hard. Yep. Mishin apparently developed a drinking problem after this. Yeah. I can't say that I blame him. No, that's. I don't. Yikes. I don't envy Mishin's place in this story. No, not at all. I I don't know what he should have done, but you I know. I don't think he had yeah, a whole lot of options. Yeah, it, it really doesn't seem that way. The Soyuz program went ahead. The Soyuz capsule. Well, I mean, let's talk Soyuz for a second. The Soyuz program is a really successful program. The Soyuz capsule is still in use today. Obviously, they've upgraded it since mm -hmm. the 60s. Well, that's good. But, yeah, it's it's essentially the same program. Uh, the, the, the capsule is just really successful. It's, it's a workhorse capsule, and it does what it needs to do. It gets to orbit, and it comes back, and everyone's fine. Mm -hmm. Usually, for the most part. <laughs> Generally, yeah. Yeah. So this 1967 first casualty for for Russia and the first in-flight fatality, it really put a damper on things. They no longer had Korolev. They had Mishin, who was not being a really effective designer for them. Mm -hmm. Their Soyuz capsule, which everything was riding on, had just killed a guy. The N1 booster that was supposed to take them to the moon was having way too many problems. They, they had several of them explode. Ah. Uh, it wasn't working out properly. And on the American side, on January 27th of 1967, we have Apollo 1. Apollo 1 wasn't really meant to fly. It was a, it was a test mission on the ground. But basically, they strapped everyone into a full mm -hmm. Saturn V. They put them in the capsule. Gus Grissom, Edward White, and Roger Chaffee were all in the uh, capsule when what we believe was probably an electrical spark of some sort occurred. And again, full oxygen environment, the three of them burned to death there That's on the launch pad. The problems that they found out of it were the fact that the maybe the pure oxygen environment wasn't the best idea. The style of door that they had didn't have like an emergency uh. escape procedure. They thought that putting like explosives on a door, like explosive latches on a door for safety reasons, would probably just be more dangerous than it was worth. They, yeah, they revisited that afterwards. I see that. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. they redesigned it um, after Apollo 1. And I mean, all three of them were veteran astronauts. We've talked about Gus Grissom as, as being several of our firsts. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty big setback for the Apollo program as well. And then, beginning of Mar uh, beginning of 1968, in in uh, March, March 27th, uh, Yuri Gagarin died in a uh, in a training accident. Still on the job. 1967 was a terrible year for the space program. Yeah, it looked bad for everybody. And the weird thing is, like up until now, there weren't that many disasters. Right. And this really put a damper on like a really like nice shiny thing, right? Like it was looking. Like, there was nothing that could possibly go wrong with it. Because it hadn't so far. Yeah, something will always go wrong. <laughs> and this really this really made both uh, the United States and the Soviet Union step back and, and take a look at their programs. So, both of them spent well over a year reworking and, and changing a whole bunch of things. So, let's take a break there, and when we come back, we'll look at, uh, at what they came back to the table with. Ooh. 
All right, we're back on HI101 with Kevin Miller. I'm here. And uh, everybody's having a real bad time with their space programs. Yeah, not a great year. It, 1967 was awful for everybody. Without exception. Without exception. Several first deaths publicly, anyways. And, you know, to have a, to have a flagship program like Apollo have the first launch not only fail spectacularly, but kill several veteran astronauts in the process... That that was that was a pretty big setback. Some polar morale too. Yep, absolutely. And this time around, neither side really looked at it as an opportunity to cast aspersions over it, because it happened to both of them about the same time. Yeah, and everyone was kind of busy. About it. <laughs> yeah, they were they were pretty busy tending their own to uh, to really say anything about. There, no one got made fun of in the UN over it. Let's put it that way. Well, that's good. No sassy remarks were made. No sassy remarks. There were a lot of redesigns in terms of safety, and you know, at least they learned something from their mistakes, right? And a lot of the early Apollo missions, I, I always wondered about this as a kid, because they don't really talk about it too much, but a lot of the early Apollo missions were just unmanned, just testing systems, right? right yep. So no one actually got back on the launch pad until Apollo 7. Now, that was a, uh, a successful Earth orbit test of the command module basically Mm -hmm. and it went really really well and it was using the saturn 1b launch system which is what they used when they didn't need to go all the way to the moon saturn 5 was a lot heavier obviously and why burn all of that if yeah you you don't don't need need to to. um likewise the the soyuz 3 finally had a, a successful mission on october 26th of the same year so like two weeks later so everybody's back on the horse, end of 1968. Cool. Now, they had a successful trip. They weren't able to dock with the unmanned Soyuz 2, which was their mission goal, but at least they got every back, everybody back in one piece. Yeah. So, you know. Baby steps. Baby steps. The N1 kept being a really terrible launch <laughs> system. They managed one translunar uh, mission, so leaving Earth orbit, going around to the moon, and then coming back. Yeah, the figure eight, right? Uh, yep. However, that one, its, it's re-entry got botched, and they basically hit the self-destruct button on it. Ooh. They blew it up on, on the way down. Eesh. Yep. They managed to pull off one successful one that was carrying uh, tortoises in September 1968, and they made it back okay. This is news to me. Excuse me? Tortoises. Yep. Yay. Now... This one, fastest in Africa. This one, those 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 tricky Soviets, they <laughs> those scamps, those scamps, they had radio broadcasts coming off of this thing with uh, human voices. <laughs> so the Americans thought that the Soviets beat them to a translunar orbit. <laughs> That's awesome. Until it finally got back. I, I've I've touched on this a number of times, but the Soviet program was so secretive. I mean. They wouldn't announce that missions were happening until it got back and the people were like safe yeah. and alive. Yeah. And then they would announce uh, to the public that it had happened. Yeah. That being said, you know, both sides were listening in on each other's rocket launches, obviously. Mm-hmm. Oh, They're yeah. pulling off as much data as they possibly could. I'm trying to. Doing their absolute best. And I mean, they were pretty successful at it so they had a pretty good idea of what the other side was doing while they were doing it Ah. it was more just like what you know getting released to the public well yeah absolutely but also 
you know, you don't really find out unless you have spies on the inside. You don't really find out until the rocket's on its way up. Yeah. Once yeah. the rocket's launched, you know about it. Yeah. But and you know, while it's going on, any radio broadcasts that are coming back, you're listening in. Mm-hmm. But up until then, it's secretive. So the the Soviets would do crap like that all the time. They at one point had displayed the uh, the earlier Vostok capsule uh, to the public at some sort of show, but they had like left the nose cone on it and they had added like a bunch of they added like eight um fins on the back that weren't actually on the spacecraft just like throw off any westerners that might be looking at it okay because they knew they would have spies there because they had advertised that they were showing the Vostok. right oh boy like it's just anything yeah. like that right because well what what do you have to go on eight fins <laughs> in terms of like well, that's the thing. Like, what do you have to go on in terms of what the other people are doing with their program other than what they're releasing to the public? Mm-hmm. So they decided to release the public with misinformation involved. <laughs> yeah, maybe a goofy rocket. And basically, the Americans looked at it and went, why does it have eight fins? This isn't real. <laughs> but there was actually, like, commemorative pictures of it, like stamps and things yeah, like that with those eight fins. People, proud Russian families get their pictures taken next to <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the nose cone was left on to disguise the fact that it's like a sphere and, you know, like all this stuff to try and throw people off. So they're they're always being tricky about their (laughs) about their program. So, yeah, the tortoises were not, in fact, speaking Russian. Probably good. But they made it back alive. So hooray for bombarded by gamma rays. (laughs) Hooray for the small things. Mutant Ninja Turtles. (laughs) Apollo 8. In December, so just a couple of months after the the tortoises successfully mm-hmm. made the translunar trip, uh, some human beings did it on on Apollo eight. American humans. Yep. So this was a lot of firsts. You got the first people to ride Saturn V to orbit. Mm-hmm. You had the first human beings to leave Earth orbit, which is a big one. The first people to orbit the moon. Mm-hmm. The first people to be out of radio contact with any human beings right, completely yeah. because they're blocked off by the, the moon. What was that uh, time span? It was like eight minutes or 12 minutes where we were basically behind the moon. Oh, I think it was much longer than that. I think oh. it was a couple of hours. Oh, maybe. I don't I'll, know. I'll, I'll check what they're, what they're orbiting. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of something else. Uh, I think you might be thinking of a solar eclipse, which is eight minutes. Oh, <laughs> completely off then. But, uh, a reverse lunar eclipse. <laughs> um. No, I think they're they're behind the moon for a little bit longer than that, but I'm I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Apollo eight was a big one. Apollo ten, I just wanted to bring up because these poor guys. <laughs> Apollo ten was a dress rehearsal mission in May of 1969. Oh. So these guys, let me read them off because I th- I think it's I think it's tragic. Thomas Stafford, John Young, and Eugene Cernan, who would actually go to the moon at some point, mm-hmm. but. These three guys, they went up into space on their Apollo 5. They docked with their lunar module. On their Saturn 5. What did I say? Apollo 5. Apollo 5. They went up on their Saturn 5. Thank you. Mm -hmm. They docked with the lunar module. They flew to the moon. Yep. Apollo 8 hadn't taken the lunar module with them. It actually wasn't ready at that point in time. Right. Which was why they went translunar before testing out docking in orbit, which is what Saturn 9, or uh, Apollo 9 eventually did. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Apollo 10 flew to the moon, attached to this lunar module. Two of them got into the lunar lander. They detached from the command module, flew down until they were only about 14 kilometers above the surface of the moon, yep. and went, cool, it works, and came back <laughs> <Say> up. <bye. laughs> came back up, 
docked with the command module and came back to Earth. Yep. They were 14 <laughs> kilometers away from being the first men on the moon. Oh, jeez. I feel kind of bad for them. Yeah, that's so what I. That sucks. On July 3rd, 1969, uh, we have another attempt at launching an N1. At this point, the Soviets are desperate. Mm-hmm. They've got the Soyuz capsule working perfectly. They've got a lunar lander. It mm-hmm. was called the LK. It was. It looks really similar to the the Apollo lander, but it's a lot smaller. Only one guy could go down. Okay. And the weird thing about that one is that you would have to spacewalk into the into the lunar lander. Huh. So you would dock with it, but it was so small, and the Soyuz is so small that the docking didn't allow for like a hatch to open. I see. Whereas with the, the Apollo, obviously yeah. there's the hatch you could just, you know, float through. Yep. The the um, the cosmonaut would have to leave the command module, spacewalk over into the lunar lander, detach and fly down. Which just adds an extra step of risk, right? But, yeah. But again the whole airlock system. We we always come to well no, it was the only oh, on the Soyuz, yeah. Yeah. There's already an airlock system in the Soyuz, like integrated, so it's not as bad. Yeah. But okay. still, it adds a whole extra bit of danger that just really isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. But it comes back to tyranny of the or tyranny, tyranny of gravity, right? Right. You can only take up so much weight. You got to make some hard decisions. So they get ready to test this N1, and the thing explodes on the launch pad. Like Classic other ones N1. have been, the other ones have been like bad failures and things. Yeah. None of them had exploded on the launch pad. This okay. killed a bunch of very experienced technicians. Oh! It destroyed the launch pad itself, made it unusable. <laughs> oh, good, scorched the earth. And obviously, the the N one itself was, it, it, you, you couldn't salvage it. Yeah. Sometimes with these wrecks, you can salvage good parts of, or good chunks of the, uh, of the components, mm-hmm. depending on how it went down. Yeah, not when a rocket explodes. <laughs> Uh, no, this one straight up like blew up. It was it was bad stuff, and essentially that put an end to the Soviet moon mission. Wow. It wasn't happening anymore. Yeah, they they lost too much in that explosion. The N one was a, a was a complete write off. Technicians, Jeez. I, I mean, yeah, a lot of them survived, but there were uh-huh. there were a number of key personnel who were killed in the explosion. So you know that's that's pretty much it for them. That was July third, and then. As we all know, July 16th, Apollo 11. Yeah. I'll give you $5 if you can name someone on that mission who wasn't Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin. Cool. Well, you can keep that $5. <laughs> Another uh, guy I feel really I, I bad. I knew this. I knew this, and now I can't think of it. <laughs> Another guy I feel real bad about, Michael Collins. That's it. The guy that got to stay home and watch. The loneliest man ever. And there was that, yeah, basically like the... the, the he was the furthest away from any other human that any human has been. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if that record was broken by any further or any later uh, Apollo missions because there was always one uh, man that stayed in the capsule. But, you know, at, certainly at that point in time, yeah, he was the, the most isolated human being. Yeah. You know, at least with uh, with Apollo 8 and Apollo 10, they had each other. That guy was alone. Yep. Uh, they landed successfully on the moon. Yep. And maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> maybe, maybe you've heard of it. Uh, it was a real thing that happened. 723 million people watched that. It was a 20% of the Earth's population at that point in time. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, out of how many? That would have been about, yeah. Jeez. Yep. One in five people watched it. Wow. Basically everyone with a TV. Yep. It super happened. It's yeah. definitely a real thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, let's not. <laughs> I, I don't want to get into that too much, but there's so many reasons that 
there's there's so many reasons that the moon landing wasn't faked and if you really want to get into it you can message me separately and i will internet fight you on this (laughs) well it's not gonna be me (laughs) i will bring i will bring up one thing Uh and it is that the soviets didn't dispute it yeah that's a big one (laughs) and i bring that up mostly because that actually matters in the context of this uh this discussion this was a race between the soviets and the americans the soviets you you bet the soviets were listening in like crazy yeah they were monitoring the entire mission the entire time if anyone's got a reason to deny it <laughs> yeah and and i mean if it had been faked and they managed to prove that it had been faked can you imagine the political cachet yeah. that they would have gotten out of that how humiliated the united states would have been mm-hmm. and that's what this whole thing had turned into we're we're way past military capabilities at this point it is a an ideological contest between these two nations and they had determined that the terms would be whoever gets to the moon first way back in 1962 and the americans won with apollo 11 yay hooray that's exciting stuff i mean it's 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 so cool do you want to do we want to throw in the obligatory armstrong clip here i think we must all right that's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind so there we go obviously it's one stall one small step for a man which doesn't really come through all that well on the broadcast mm-hmm. i've always kind of wondered if neil armstrong says that because he said it wrong like if he flubbed it <laughs> listen guys or if it really was a radio thing because i don't hear it in there at all but yeah, neither do I. you know it's it was coming from the moon so who knows <laughs> it came a real long way it's got space dust on it that's true so they really didn't spend that much time on the moon i mean it was it was a very short mission it was essentially a get out say we made it yeah. grab a couple rocks and bounce cool rocks take a picture too well they didn't know what they were going to find when they got there right some people thought that there was going to be such fine thick dust that essentially the lunar lander would just like disappear in a poof of <laughs> talc powder yeah. yeah that's fair we we, we how, how could you know we weren't entirely sure yeah those people weren't taking all that seriously i mean one thing that i've i've ignored mostly because everyone but scientists were ignoring it is that everyone was sending out probes all over the place the soviets had had a number of very successful moon probes by this point in time Mm -hmm. they'd also put probes on venus and uh mars long before this but you know nobody cared about that (laughs) stuff which is super sad it's super cool that they managed to do that yeah i think there's a much bigger audience for that sort of thing now yeah like where you know like, I watched the Curiosity landing. It was awesome. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's, a lot of people did that might not even be traditionally interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, it's just harder to wave a flag and point at, Yeah. you know, hey, look, we put we, we, we managed to hit that thing with our rocket. Everyone's going, yes, yeah, so what? Except the scientists who are thrilled to have all of that incre- incredibly relevant data. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, that's kind of the nature of the space race at this point. Again, it's all posturing. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that the the posturing is is kind of the death of the Apollo missions because they did it and they did it with 161 days to spare. Yep. According to Kennedy's assertion that it would happen by the end of the decade. And now they've done it and now what? Well, now they did it. The Soviets have basically given up. Now they don't need to do it anymore. Now they don't need to do it anymore. So Apollo missions were planned through Apollo 20. Mm-hmm. Most of us know the the story of the rest of the missions fairly well i mean they 
they cut back several of them until only Apollo 17 was the, the last mission. 13, they made a whole movie about that disaster. They got back okay. Spoilers. I should watch that again. I know, it's so good. 15, 16, and 17 uh, included the use of the Lunar Rover, which is a pretty cool machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you ever get a chance to like look into the, the details oh, of that thing. It, yeah. oh, what a feat of technology. It's just amazing. And... You know, people started viewing moon missions as old, like old hat, which is hard to believe. Which is so jaded. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, it's 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 weird to I, I can't comprehend it because just the idea that we managed to do that is is so insane. I'm I'm blown away. I I would have been glued to the set every single time it happened. And there are times when I'm driving home at night and I stare at a full moon and I just stare at it and I'm like, oh, that's a giant orb that is orbiting us. Twelve dudes have been on that thing. <laughs> that is insane to me. That's that's crazy. Anyways, we're kind of wondering at this whole thing and uh, we're getting a little off track as much as I would like to continue. Let my imagination free, Adam. <laughs> we can do that for off air for a while. <laughs> After N1 was clearly a disaster, the Soviets kind of refocused uh, towards a space station goal which mm-hmm. honestly they if, if they, they hadn't let the first place. well if they hadn't let the americans dictate the terms Go of victory yeah. they probably could have done earlier and with more success and you would have seen a very different kind of space race which would be us sitting around and arguing over you know well what's more impressive a space station where a guy stayed for a, a mm-hmm. month straight or you know a guy walking on the moon maybe that wasn't the best comparison but like you know what i mean like if they had been going for longevity if they had been going for scientific discovery of you know long-term experiments in orbit Mm -hmm. that stuff is a very different kind of achievement than um you know driving around the moon on a dune buggy and then hitting a golf ball yeah cool (laughs) it makes for good pr but you know yeah it's not the first thing i would do upon being on the moon they all sound like such cowboys when you hear the, oh, the audio. Oh, they yeah. And they totally are, which is kind of what I love about them. Well, it's the new frontier. That's the whole point. Exactly. But yeah, golfing on the moon. Or the clip of... themselves uh, cowboys. Absolutely. Or the clip of, I, I forget which astronaut, I think it was Apollo 15, of um, the guy dropping a feather and a hammer. Right, And yeah. going, well, I guess, uh, I guess Galileo was right. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Man, you got to the moon strapped to the biggest explosive. <laughs> I should hope so, because you've been calculating or you've been basing a lot of calculations on that guy. Yeah. I guess we nailed it. <laughs> oh man. So the Soviets managed to launch uh, a space station, the first space station called uh Salyut 1, April 1971. So not that long after no, the moon launch. Yeah, they did okay. They got that up there. Um yeah, they did pretty good, right? Well, I mean, it wasn't the most impressive space station. It wasn't huge. Yeah. It didn't last up there all that long. Soyuz 10 didn't manage to dock with it, which was its primary mission. Soyuz 11 did manage to dock with it, and they stayed up there for 22 days, which is not too bad. And, I mean, they could hang up there with you know without their suits and all that stuff, mm-hmm. and it was good. Uh, unfortunately, the crew of Soyuz 11 died during reentry, all three of them. Oh. The capsule depressurized, and they weren't wearing their pressure suits on their way down. And it depressurized quickly enough, and the Soyuz capsule was small enough that they didn't really have time to get them on. There was nothing they could do. Yeah. So it depressurized, and they died in orbit. They're actually the only people 
uh, on record to have died in orbit. Um, everyone else has been in atmosphere or on mm-hmm. a launch pad or something like that. And uh, the most messed up part about it is that the Soyuz capsule is completely automated, right? So essentially the capsule just landed there with three corpses strapped in. It just didn't. Oh, boy. <sighs> yeah, it's it's a rough one. And, you know, that was another big blow to the Soviet program. I mean, it wasn't as well-funded as the American one. Mm-hmm. The political pressures that came up out of Brezhnev's takeover had really cr- cramped it. The loss of Korolev had really cramped it. Honestly, after about 1965, I don't know that they had a lot of a chance against the, the Americans. But those early Russian victories also really helped to spur on American innovation and mm-hmm. uh, and, and funding, to be to be honest with you. Yeah. It's really easy to get money when you say, uh, if I don't get this money, the Soviets will beat us again. Yeah. Congress will just whip out their ch- checkbooks and... Yeah, blank check. It says NASA at the top, just write in whatever you think is good. Yeah. I signed it with a thumbs up. <laughs> the Americans put up uh, a space station of their own called Skylab, uh, August 1973. Again, it wasn't really that well received by the public. The space race was really seen as kind of over at this point. Mm-hmm. But what really finished it off was uh, what's known as the Apollo-Soyuz test project, which was announced in May of 1972. Um Nixon got along really well with Brezhnev, which says a lot about both of them. Yeah. But both countries were kind of tired of it at this point in time. The Americans had kind of won. Harsh one in anymore. America was embroiled in like the worst part of Vietnam. Right, yeah. They didn't really, like, you know, Nixon didn't really have the political capital to keep it going. Uh, At the same time, uh, the Soviet Union was hurting from a falling out with China and China is subsequently becoming closer with the West, right. as well as the uh, the OPEC crisis, which really hurt it economically. Mm-hmm. They were just kind of ready to sort of take care of themselves at home and stop trying to beat the Americans at stuff in space. The grandeur had kind of worn off. The, the symbolic nature of the race was sort of gone at this point, and they didn't feel like there was any real need for it. So I got this when I was at the uh, Kennedy Space Center, Oh. Years ago. That's the mission patch from the Apollo Soyuz project. And basically what they proposed was really simple, develop a docking system that would allow American and Russian spacecraft to dock with each other. They spent several years working it out. Uh, an Apollo capsule was launched up using the 1B system, so mm-hmm. the orbital system, uh, and it docked with, an, with, a, with a Soyuz spacecraft. They shook hands, exchanged gifts. That's right, yeah. Did some, like, a few, like, small joint experiments and undocked, and it was very uneventful. Okay, bye. But was very symbolic of it being sort of the end of an era. Mm-hmm. And that was really the end of the space race. So there were other things that sort of, you know, signaled that end. Things like the UN having a committee on the peaceful uses of outer space starting in 59. Uh, there were several treaties that were signed in the 60s, including... Um, one in 67 that agreed to the sort of international nature of space. So that was the one that took away any weaponization. They were both, both the U.S. and the U.K., or both the U.S. and the USSR were okay with this because they had already exploded nukes in space. Mm-hmm. So they knew what it did. So they were okay with not doing it anymore yeah. on a treaty. They didn't need it for the experimental version. Is this the beginning of the phrase Star Wars? No, that came in the 70s. Okay. That was under Reagan. Yeah. 
there were things like celestial bodies cannot be claimed by sovereign states. Okay. So you can't just go up and say, moon's mine now. Yep. <laughs> Note that this was in 67, so it was before anyone had gotten to the moon. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, they were, they were rushing that, that part. Uh, states are liable for damage caused by their space objects. Yeah. So if Skylab falls out of the sky and, I don't know, destroys a town, yep. the U.S. is responsible for that. Mm-hmm. That uh, that treaty is currently signed by 102 countries. It's still in effect. There's been amendments, but uh, it's a really important part of, of the competition is that they needed to establish some sort of ground rules because, remember, Eisenhower was trying to figure out where air sovereignty extended to. Right, yeah. This is what established that. And we decided, kind of similar to Antarctica, this belongs to everybody. You can't just own it and you can't weaponize it. Right. And that's that's sort of what, what they decided on it. So... Well, that's why you have a lot of cooperative ventures and stuff today. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, since the space race, it really has become a lot more symbolic of a, a greater good than the rhetoric was talking about. I mean, you have things like the International Space Station that is truly international. You know, there were how many countries went into building that? 12 or something like that? I don't remember offhand. It's 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 quite a few. And it's it's absolutely a, a, a an international venture. You have Americans going up to that space station on Soyuz craft today. Right, yeah. There was some small competition in the, uh, the late 70s, early 80s to, to um, develop a shuttle, but the Soviet shuttle didn't really work out. They abandoned that pretty quickly. They realized that the Soviet, or that the Soyuz is a much better delivery mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree. Yeah. I thought the space shuttle was super cool when I was a kid. It's a bad space. Yeah. It's a bad spacecraft. Wow. And we're getting away from it now, which is nice. Uh, it's it's due time. Mm-hmm. Why would you strap the heaviest thing to the side of the rocket instead of the top of the rocket? <laughs> it just doesn't seem like a good idea. It it was a compromise between several things that people wanted. And like so many compromises, especially by government bodies, yeah. it ended up being the worst of every Designed world. Designed by committee. <laughs> it was the worst of every world. They thought that they were going to be launching like 100 of those a year. Oh, okay. <laughs> it turns out that the downtime that you need to get it spaceworthy again completely prohibits it and completely wipes out any savings of keeping the uh, the shuttle around. Mm-hmm. It just, it was bad. I don't know why it continued as long as it did. We needed a, we needed a Soyuz equivalent long, long ago. But Soyuz does the job, and we use that now, and we can, because this whole race thing is off. That's right. So that's just about everything I have to say on the space race. Um, usually stuff like this ends with lists of all of the benefits that we've gotten out of the space race, like, you know, non-fogging ski goggles and what have you, <laughs> tang. It's usually, it's, they usually reach by the end of the list. Yeah, nailed it, non-fogging ski goggles. I'm dead serious. No, I know. Well, I mean, other technologies have been developed by other space properties, and that's one of the things that NASA does now to kind of lobby for a larger budget is to advertise the spinoffs. Yeah, and it's, well, it's important, and yeah. but we never would have seen those spinoffs if it wasn't for the straight-up, you know, saber-rattling yeah, of the exactly. space race throughout the 60s. And that was straight-up, let's spend money so that the other guys can't make us look bad. If we don't get to the moon, someone else will. Yeah. Yeah, it, it puts a different spin on we go to the moon because it's hard. Yeah. So, yeah, that's everything I have. Uh, were there any things that you wanted to talk some more about? or I don't believe so, no. Okay. But uh, I'd encourage any listeners to check out some videos 
uh, on YouTube of Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's got some good lectures. Uh, he's yeah, got the Cosmo sure. series, which I enjoy. Cosmos was good, especially if you're a little bit shakier on the... Uh, on the bedrock principles. Yeah. Also some good uh, animations and like history lessons in there as well. Yeah, it's it's a good show. Yeah, look up... Just look up Rocket Fail compilation. I guarantee you'll have a good time uh, watching like multi-million dollar rock, rockets explode. My heart won't break. <laughs> well, they don't actually show... The guys in the like short sleeve shirts, like crying <laughs> no, while it happens. Oh, sixties <laughs> uh, oh, fashion. Jeez, but it's 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 yeah, it's incredible watching those things go. Sometimes literally sideways. Yeah, that yes. <laughs> and I mean, if somehow, some way, you've never seen footage of the first moon landings or any of the the, the moon landing footage. Please go look at that stuff. Powerful stuff. It's 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 absolutely incredible. And also watch uh, Apollo thirteen, which is what I'm going to do. <laughs> I've I've been thinking about it. It's been too long. I only saw that once, and it was like right after it came out. It's such a great movie. All right. Well, now that we, <laughs> because Tom Hanks needed my help. Yeah, exactly. You're welcome, Ron Howard. Shut it. I'll expect my check in the mail. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. The forces that drove the space race were very political. Without wanting to defeat their opponents, neither the Soviet Union nor the United States would likely have spent so much money on a space program. But as cynical as that might sound, it doesn't diminish from the achievements it gave rise to. The competition between the two powers put a human being on the first celestial body other than Earth, advancing our scientific knowledge significantly and fueling a desire to reach beyond our planet. There's a good reason that the Cold War squabble is being to fade, and the wonder of the space race remains. It may have been a competition, but it's changed into something that unites us all. Next time on HI101, we'll do something a little bit different from usual, and take a tour of thousands of years of history united by a single common thread, smallpox. That show will be up on March 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.